Whoa. Hey there, CNFers. CNF buddies, hope you're having a CNF and great week. What fuels you? What gets your engine revved up? What makes you redline? For me, it's an interview, and dare I say, a riff. It's the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak to the world's best artists about creating works of nonfiction. Leaders in the world of narrative journalism, memoir, documentary film, radio, essay, and try and tease out origins and habits, routines, so that you can apply those tools of mastery to your own work. Hey, and for episode 84, I welcome Adam Valen Levinson. Adam's a smart guy, a real smart guy. He's got a yale.edu email, so that'll tell you how damn smart he is. And he's written the wonderful book, The Abu Dhabi Bar Mitzvah, Fear and Love in the Modern Middle East. Flip the book over, and here's a blurb from Buzz Bissinger. Quote, Adam Valen Levinson is too young to have written a book this good. Eloquent, analytical, funny, sad, end quote. Still not impressed? Peter Thoreau said, quote, a fabulously written primer on the darkest countries in the world, or not so dark as Valen Levinson shows with his toolkit of sharp sociology and brilliant humor, end quote. Well, I feel inadequate. Here's a little more about Adam from his dust jacket bio. He's a journalist and travel writer whose work focuses on human stories in conflict areas. His work has appeared in numbers of outlets, including Vice, The Paris Review, Al Jazeera, and Haaretz. I'm not pronouncing that right. He is an affiliate of the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C., and a fellow at the Center of Cultural Sociology at Yale University, studying humor as a key to cultural understanding. Damn, I make donuts and talk to people. Okay, so here's that part where I ask you if you dig the show, consider subscribing and sharing. Um, leave an honest rating on iTunes, those help, which only takes a few seconds. Or if you want to take a little more time, leave an honest review. And in exchange, I'll coach up a piece of your work up to 2,000 words. That's the deal. That's like a $100 value once I'm done because I read things three times and mark things up like it's my job. Okay. I'm tired of me. I'm sure you are too. Here's Adam Valen Levinson. Episode 84. Your book was, in, was uh, incredible, and I really got that uh, that true, like, restless feeling that you were feeling. Like, I just got that undercurrent of restlessness going through the whole thing, and um, so I, that's something I definitely want to tap into here. Um, as we get into the book, I wanted to, wanted to maybe ask you first, like, where do you think that restlessness that inherent restlessness comes from. That is, I'm so glad that that's something that you picked up on. I think that's probably the truest. If there had to be one emotion in the whole thing, that that really is it. Um, that's that's what it is to be a be an adolescent for starters, or a kid. You know, just the the feeling like you have all this energy and you have to put it somewhere. And then I think also in the context of you know, uh, America in the 90s and early 2000s with parents who were very open and didn't 
didn't force me into any particular path. It it just made it so that, you know, there seemed like a, a, a thousand different roads and I wanted to take all of them. There was every reason to do anything, but no reason to do anything in particular. And so there's just all this energy that builds uh, and I'm not putting it into anything specific, you know? And I think after a long time that turns into, it's a real pressure cooker. You know, it's hard when you start overthinking something to ever just put your feet on the ground and start doing because, you know, you can't you can't think your way out of out of overthinking. Um, and I think in a lot of ways that's what that's what kind of the book is is me turning turning concrete something that really is a, an abstract kind of service, you know, an abstract kind of uh, restlessness, but trying to put it in a place where I could I could look at it and and it would be, you know. Uh, uh, a, a very externalized, obvious way of facing something that was going on inside me. Mm. And when you were when you were a kid and a teenager, and you know you had a lot of sort of options, and you weren't necessarily guided into one thing in particular. Um, what were some of those interests you had, and and in those interests, what did you find yourself gravitating towards more more than others? Man, I was I was uh, I was interested in. in really everything you put in front of me. I think mm-hmm. I I think like at a very young age I I made a kind of religion out of indecision, you know, and it it just made it so that any anybody who liked something if I wanted to believe that, you know, that they were a valid human being in any way, I would go, well, they must like that for a reason and let's see if I can figure out how to like that thing too. Uh but you know, you end up getting kind of pulled apart that way. My my dad, my dad is a contemporary classical composer. So he composes the kind of music that I guess most people would like run away from really fast. You know, they would go, this is just not even the kind of stuff people who like classical music are like, this is, uh, there's a lot going on here. Um, <laughs> and my 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 mom is a therapist, uh, very pro kind of openness and and uh, exploration. I think it just made it so that I was never able to really critique anything. Um, so you know, like when I was a kid, I I played in the the college's Balinese gamelan, you know, and I tried to go to soccer practice, and I played in the in the jazz band at school. Then I also tried to be like really good at you know math. Just whatever was on the table, I just tried to keep it together, uh, and that's it's it's really tough. I think you know when you keep trying to make you, you keep trying to avoid actual decisions and keep trying to make the choice that makes it so that you don't have to make choices. I managed to keep that up for like a really, really, really long time. I think almost until probably you know this year <laughs> or. Or a few years ago, where where really you realize you can't uh, you can't be all of the things fully, right, right, and and so when you were you know like twelve, well I think it was twelve, you know nine eleven happens when you're when you're twelve, and then all of a sudden like that kind of cracks the world open in a different in a different way, and um, what was it about that moment that um, that triggers a curiosity in you that ultimately leads to the Abu Dhabi bar mitzvah. So like can maybe like put us in that moment and like where, where your curiosity was and how you wanted to come to a greater understanding of this other, you know, this other 
this other thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that was like, that was really the first moment where I, I had, I had something to push back against. I mean, I was, I wasn't, you know, that rebellious of a super young person. I could, I could listen to what, you know, my elders would say and go, yeah, you know, they got a point. And I could see what my friends thought and I'd go, yeah, they're, everybody's right about everything. There wasn't a huge dissonance, I think, until after 9-11 where it seemed like a lot of people that I, I used to put a ton of faith in, you know, just whatever I heard on the news at that age and my parents, you know, saying, uh, you can't go to these places. Um, it might not, you know, it might not be that everybody hated us. I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't a child of, of extremists in that way, you know, but this whole part of the world is off limits and something for just really deep, uh, in me was like, that can't be true at all. Hmm. Uh, that's just way too simple. Nothing is ever like that. Like even, even as like a nine year old, you're learning in American schools, like everything has multiple sides and look at it this way. And also this way, like there's no way that they were that right about that. And that's just a moment where you start, where I, I started, I think coming apart from my parents and, and, it's like, you know, in East of Eden, Steinbeck has great quotes about this kind of thing, about how you start seeing the holes in your parents' logic and you're, you're never quite whole again, that kind of growing up, you know, mm. where, where you lose that absolute authority. But it's a, it's a process you got to go through. And I mean, it took a really long time. I think I, I was trying to reconcile what my parents thought and what the State Department thought and what the media thought, all these institutions that I still trusted. Well, at the same time, I was like, I don't, but I don't, at one level, I don't, be, I don't believe you. I believe in you, but I don't believe you. So I think that's like, a, that's a major tension in, in really growing up, which is, which is a big reason the book is, is called the Abu Dhabi Bar Mitzvah, not just because I, I had my belated one over there, but, uh, because it's a story about, about that, that conflict. Yeah. And you, you're right. And one particularly tight sentence somewhere in the middle, it was like you were looking or you were exploring that distance between fact and fear. And it seems like in the bridge between, say, 9-11 and the time that you then went over to Abu Dhabi and then started exploring exploring the Middle East, like that is really a central tenet of, A, your restlessness, but also you trying to reconcile um, the what, what you – what you were questioning from your, from your peers and from, from men, like mentors, like parental mentors and so forth. Uh, I don't know if that's yeah. something that really galvanized for you when you were over there. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, first of all, I'm really glad that there are tight sentences. That is good to hear. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, I think it, it's a, it's a really big issue even now, you know, we talk about fake news and we think that, it's going to be identifying the fakeness and that's going to be what sets us free or puts us on the right course or, or calibrates us to what, you know, reality is. The trouble is that, you know, there are legitimate fears that are based in real facts and in a lot of things that the media were reporting, basically all of the facts that were being reported were true. You know, I'd go to a place like Afghanistan where maybe people would say, or say, as maybe a, a, a really specific example, uh, in on the Iran-Iraq border, there were these hikers that were 
taken into Iranian custody. Um, some people said they were spies or they were stupid. They were crossing over this border. Anyway, they ended up imprisoned in Iran in this place that people said, this must be so dangerous, this part of Iraq. And that was a fact. It was true. That, that really happened to them. But you'd get a collection of all these stories uh, from the Middle East. And it was a collection of all these truths that skewed you towards believing that the only thing that could be there is fear. That all these truths taken together created a, an emotional kind of understanding that was pretty inaccurate, you know. And I, I ended up going to the same place where these hikers were, were kind of disappeared. And it's like it's waterfalls. People go for picnics. It's just like a chill place. What happened to these hikers is is still a little bit mysterious, but probably took um, some very different steps on their part than than your average tourist would take, and. You know, and it made it so that what I wanted to find were the kind of stories that, unfortunately, based on, you know, the incentives and and the setup of of media, you know, you can't have a story that's like a thousand Iraqis have a dope picnic today. You just can't. <laughs> we're just not. Gonna, we're not going to get that. I wish you could. But I was like, I want to I want a book that gives you first of all, it gives you the truth. But the truth is is on a day-to-day basis is so much of that and that's what calibrates you back towards reality is having these things that fill in the other sides of daily life or you know annual experience um so that you actually get a a true sense of the place um what were your your expectations when you went over there and how are those challenged or and how are how are your expect expectations of the of your trip and your experience met when you when you got over there like what was you know what did what did you think you were going to come up to and then you know what hit you when you got there it's tough because i i think i was almost always of two minds which was that i was partly fueled by the expectation of fear. I mean, that was what had driven me there. But at the same time, I didn't believe it. So it was like I was going into the place because it was accused of being fearful or being dangerous. And at the same time, I was like, no way. I'm going to prove that wrong. Um, <laughs> so I was never really sure what my expectations were. At moments, there were places that, you know, as a huge relief, I knew nothing about. You know, if I went into Oman or... Um, this strange island in Iran or even Somaliland, you know, I really didn't know anything. And that was nice because you could start to just experience a place on its own terms. But most of the time, I think I, you know, it was like, it's like going on a first date where somebody tells you, the, the person you're about to go on a date with, uh, she, she's super creepy. <laughs> and you'd be like, I don't think so. I'm going to go on the date, but I'm not going to be able to get that accusation out of my head. Yeah. And it colors your whole experience. Even if you're, even if you go, I'm going in there with good intentions, everything I'm going back, trying to find the truth, whatever, it still framed your experience. And I, and it took me really the whole course of, of the book. And I, I didn't know that I was writing a book really until, until afterwards, but it took me all of this time to, to realize that that framework, that even having that accusation in my head um, and and desiring to go to the places because of that uh, made it so that I could never really in, engage the places on their own terms. Um, yeah. At what point did you feel like you were 
that you had a book on your hands or were you always taking notes while you were over there or journals or some forth uh, something that that you ultimately were like oh maybe I can cobble this together into something that could be yeah. uh, illuminating to to a general readership yeah yeah totally i mean you know so much of this was so much of my reason for going was a bit of a contrarian impulse it's like i think so many of the people around me even you know well educated you know, poli sci majors and future diplomats and my, you know, well-traveled parents, they're wrong. And I, I want to share the stories beyond just the fact that, you know, when I come back from, you know, a fun trip in Afghanistan or something, people in bars are interested, you know, and then you start going, well, if they're interested, then who else would be? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, if this were now, if I were leaving for Abu Dhabi now, I probably would have you know, been posting Snapchat and Instagram stories. And that's probably what there would be out of this. There would have been some way to, to process and share information really quickly. This was a bit before that time, you know, this is the early days of, of Twitter. And I knew I, 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 I had all the, all the right compulsions, but there weren't these platforms yet. And I, I took notes, you know, I was typing notes on my phone all the time. I was recording uh, voice memos constantly that I ended up transcribing. I was blogging a little bit. I was taking pictures. I was videoing. I didn't, I wanted to somehow capture everything because I went, you know, basically every minute, every minute that I'm in a place that so many people I know think couldn't possibly be like this. Every minute is an argument against that kind of fear. Every every minute is something that could be used as evidence against the kind of fear that I think has been really corrosive, you know. And and so I wanted to use it for something. Um, I didn't know what the right format would be. And I think that in a book, hopefully, you know, what you can do is you can you can engage with real complexity. You know, you get a hundred thousand words of detail that often have contradictions in them and, you know, engage with the messiness where you're not giving like a hot take that says, you think it's dangerous. It's actually all fine. It's, you know, it's more complicated than that. But I thought that this could really be the kind of thing that maybe would, would help, uh, basically would help people be, be less afraid. You know, that was what I was trying to make. Yeah. And you also, you, you, at one point you quote, um, Albert Camus, Camus, um, that, uh, travel without, fear is nothing and um what when did at what point did you feel like you had a sort of a courage when you when you felt maybe that itch of fear that that was might may, might be a time to to lean into it it was time to hit the gas and maybe go forward instead of maybe sit back and be more observant like in but instead you kind of leaned into it yeah i mean maybe it's worth taking one slight step back it, you know camus I think said something even even more accurate to this book, which is like he said that the only philosophical question worth asking is is like whether or not you should stay alive, basically, you know, because he goes basically every everything you do, you've already you've implicitly made the choice. Like, should I kill myself or not? You know, it's <laughs> just very French, very philosophical, but also really true. Um, and I think if you want to understand indecision taken to its max. You know, a a young person who's like, I came out of college, you know, and and I don't actually know what 
I want to do. Like I have ideas, but concretely, what am I doing? You know, indecision dialed all the way up to the max is like, I don't even know what, whether life means that, like what is life for? And one of the, one of the easiest ways of addressing that, that really long-term indecision and confusion about, you know, what to do is by just narrowing that time horizon down to, you know, down to the moment where you think, Hey, look, there's a possibility where I might get killed or kidnapped or something in the moment. It's a huge relief if you're, if you're, (laughs) if you're that decisive. Um, and so in that way, I just didn't feel fear the same way that I knew other people did. And I wanted to make that useful. It's like, you know, finance guys always talk about, you know, your comparative advantage. It's like, what do I, okay. And not just finance, everybody. What, like, what do you have to offer? And I recognized that the relief that I got by putting myself in a place where at least I could hold on to some kind of expectation of, of danger uh, overpowered the actual fear that I felt and ended up being just a net positive. Um, yeah, like you said, the best decisions were the scariest ones in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah, totally. And, and, and at the same time, that still has that seed of accusation and of framing the, framing the place in a way where I, I, so long as I got, you know, an adrenaline rush from going to a place, it definitely made it so that I couldn't fully see it as a, just a place where people lived and, um, you know, as a place where daily life was also, uh, also still a thing. And so where did the, the writerly impulse come from that you that in the back of your head, you knew that this might be something you want to write about. But even before that, there had to be there has to be some kernel of, you know, I want I want to be a writer. I want to tell true stories. And, and here's your unique experience to tell. Um, so where where was the genesis of your your need or your want to tell stories and subsequently true stories i feel like there's probably no real super clear answer to that you know but um there was a definitely a history of kinds of storytelling in 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 my family um so i'd seen that it was possible my you know my dad being a composer it's it's expressing you know ideas in a way that just targets emotions right up front you know and so i saw that that was a possibility my grandma was a young adult author and wrote, wrote, um, and, and so from a really young age, I saw that that was a thing that existed that you could do. Um, and I remember she lived in San Diego. I remember when I was, I must've been nine or 10 or something writing. I, I won like third place in the, in the, you know, Del Mar winter story competition or something for writing, for writing a little story. And I, I, I could kind of understand that that was a way that you could, connect with the world you could process your own thoughts and put them out this is a story about uh having having been really panicked out in the water surfing and thinking that there were sharks and then and then like paddling in really fast until i heard some uh some girls on the beach going oh look dolphins hmm. and uh <laughs> that might that might have planted uh, a seed for trying to uh trying to nip fears in the bud you know <laughs> yeah. um identifying fears that were based in something wrong, you know, turning into panic that, uh, 
I missed some good waves that day, you know? Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, and then I think probably there's, there's an even larger cultural history of, of Jewish storytelling and of dealing with the paradoxes and the messiness of the world by, by, by turning it into jokes and stories and art and other things that don't really have a conclusion. You know, there isn't like, I solved the problem now, but it's, it's turning the, the kind of chaos of life into something that, that you can use to connect to other people. Um, and I think I always believe even I'm, you know, I'm glad that this didn't turn into a Snapchat story, you know, a series of Snapchat stories or something, because I think that, you know, with the written word, you can get, you can get into a kind of detail that, you know, human beings have been trying to perfect for, couple million years and uh when you're dealing with something this complicated and messy and charged you know especially the middle east where any word you say people already have a ton of opinions and think that you're on one side or another that you need you know you need words to be able to to get into detail like that yeah you can't just have something that's that is digitally evaporative like it'll just be gone in a in 24 hours, like you got something that was concrete out of the experience that you could later digest when you are ready to write about it instead of having it just dissolve into the ether until you could take the next round of of uh, of Snapchats and or Instagram stories or or what have you. Yeah, I mean, and I think even even if the picture was up there forever, you can see a picture and you can respond to it you know, by saying, well, what are you trying to say? You know, what are you, what are you trying to prove? Oh, you must be trying to say this. And, and, and in writing, if this is your goal, you can constantly be saying, here's what I'm trying to tell you. And here's, here's what, here's some of the many, you know, connotations that spiral out of this idea. But let me try and, uh, stay aware of what all of them are and, and keep telling you, here's where I'm trying to let this lead, you know? I think I, I I just think that that's super important. Did you see uh did did write uh, did a, this kind of journalism uh, did this kind of sneak up on you? Was this something you saw yourself doing or uh, was it something that kind of took you off guard and you're like, "Oh, wow, here here I am writing some this kind of narrative nonfiction that uh you know, uh, I got another way of saying it was like, was this always a goal or did it just kind of this experience happened and then it allowed you to write about it. If if that makes any sense, I know that's kind of a weird yeah. phrasing. No, it definitely does. It's I, I think it's it's both. You know, I mean, I I had been writing, but in different ways. Like I, uh, you know, I interned at the Colbert Report and the Onion when I was in college, and wrote for our fake newspaper at Columbia. Uh, you know, I I. I wrote jokey kinds of things and tried to under and was really trying to have big conversations, but in a way that I thought was accessible, you know, and, and I think at the end of the day, the writing from the Middle East came out of that same kind of child, childish childhood impulse to keep everything together. It was like, this is a kind of, this is a kind of, this is something that I might be able to create that still takes into account as many of the things that I'm trying to do as possible, you know, that I, I, I did want to report stories from places. Um, I did end up, you know, going back to do more straight reporting 
from places like Afghanistan or Tajikistan. But the personal side of it made it so that, I mean, what I was really interested in was, was how people felt and how I felt and changing how other people felt. And I think that in that kind of narrative, personal narrative, nonfiction, it was the, it was the clearest way of, of keeping all that together, if that makes sense. And, you know, and, in, and in some ways it's kind of why at the, at the end of the day, I'm a, a little, uh, there, there's a downside to this being put on the nonfiction shelves or especially in the travel shelves because, because people come to it in a particular way, you know, people then read it as nonfiction and say, I'm reading it for the facts instead of the way you might come to fiction where you read it for the feelings, you know? And, um, so there's always a tricky balance there, but uh. yeah, and the, what what was uh, particularly good, like the sort of the ballast to your the your fearlessness and restlessness was your your relationship with Masha in this in the story too, because she in a, in a lot of ways represents maybe the more fearful, the more tentative person. At least that that was sort of like my feeling for, it. and that also grounded the and gave it a more. Uh, an extra like emotive layer. Some of you were saying like, you know, something that is a little more that has more of that uh, emotive power. So was that part of the, the strategy of in, including that into the uh, folding Masha into the, and the emails into the structure of, of the book? I think she's just kind of more rational in a lot of ways and more and more normal. Uh, you know, well, I, I had some kind of screw loose in the way that I felt, fear she was you know more of a uh a well-adjusted human being and and just in the interest of of reporting it's like it's good to have a baseline in some ways just saying yeah this is this is what maybe normal is and then here's here's kind of where i stand but that was also something that was really uh a huge part of my experience in the Middle East, I mean, of, 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 uh, affecting how I was feeling in any given moment. And I just wanted that to be true to share that, you know, in the, in the story that I was still really connected to somebody in America. And as much as I was trying to push my own limits and maybe find out information that could be in some ways, you know, nationally helpful, um, if presented in the right way, I was still, you know, caught up in a, in just a one-to-one relationship and in the, in the kind of way that, that, you know, most people are at some point in their lives. And, and I also think that like, there's, there's a huge connection between, you know, the way that you might be afraid of a new place cause you're unsure of it and you don't, you've heard a couple things and whatever, and the way that you're, that you can be afraid of a, of a new relationship. Uh, just that there aren't that many different kinds of fear, if any, you know, that they, that it sort of manifests in a similar way. And in a process of kind of growing up and trying to get more responsible about the way that I just faced choices and uncertainty and, and, and what I did with fear when I felt it, it, it comes out in, in similar ways, both in relation to, you know, the Middle East and, and, uh, and to her. And as you were, Looking to package this and and try to get it represented and sold, you know, in the um, you know in the acknowledgments, you know, you, big hat tip to your agent, and to which she said, you know, italicized in the 
in the acknowledgments was like, this might just be a thing. And what was that experience of trying to, you know, get this thing to the, to the, to the negotiating table, so to speak, you know, how, what was that process like turning your idea for the book into something that was ultimately sellable to a publisher? Yeah. Uh, brutal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, just, so I, you know, I left my job in Abu Dhabi, um, at the beginning of 2012 and I came back saying, all right, you know, this is the time I got to try and write this. This is, this is, um, this is the challenge. And by about summer 2013, I'd written a lot there and then I wrote more when I came back and I had about a, a thousand page manuscript, you know, and, and it was just full of so much that I, I knew these stories inside out and backwards, you know, and I, already, you know, stop being able to actually read it and decide for myself with any confidence whether or not, you know, the sentences made sense or they were interesting or how they went together. And that's just, that's pretty unwieldy, you know, especially when you're like, it's a book kind of about everything. It's about growing up and it's about the Middle East, but it's not about the Middle East. And it's a, <laughs> that's the love story, but it's not, you know, and it's every, and, um, and my first round of, of approaching agents, uh, probably because I tried to, you know, pack too much into a, 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 a pitch, I, you know, it just wasn't successful and I, I lost hope pretty quick. I mean, I just went, look, this is what it is and I, I can't, I can't simplify it anymore to tell you what it is and it's not working. I, about, about a year later, uh, Jane von Mieren at Vetus, she sent me a note. She said, you know, I, I, um, it was a friend's aunt's agent who passed this along to her. Hmm. And she said, she said, I just, I really like, I really like what this sounds like, which other people had, but they, you know, they would like it and they would say, but it's a, it's a nonfiction, you know, memoir by a, by an unknown, just come on, man, who's gonna, <laughs> how are we gonna, what are we going to do with this? You know, it just hits whatever, whatever, whatever the opposite of buzzwords are, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) and she, she worked with me on just putting together a proposal, you know, thank God with nonfiction, you're putting together a proposal that is not, nobody's trying to read the whole manuscript, which I just wouldn't have been able to make. Um, but they read excerpts and, and the idea about what you're trying to make. Um, so she really helped me do that. And, and then Norton, Norton was interested, uh, and then I had to hire hire an editor who had been a former teacher of mine, uh, Jacob Levinson, to help me edit, uh, help me edit and cut things down, and, and use his eyes instead of mine to say, "Look, this you've said this before, and we don't need this here, and cut this out, and basically cut the thing uh, in less than half." You know, which it absolutely should be. It does not deserve to be a thousand pages. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you have this sort of uh, this work in hand and? to take it to your MFA program to um, hopefully like hone it down? Like, were you working on this throughout your Goucher MFA? Yeah. You know, when I came to the Goucher, I probably, you know, that sort of 500 pages. And I guess I showed up thinking like, Hey, maybe they're going to just tell me how to structure things. And then I'll be able to flesh out, you know, just put the flesh on a skeleton and cut things <laughs> out and that'll be great. You know, but at the end of the day, like editors for the most part, you can't they can't do that they can it's it's a lot easier to start from a blank page and say here's this outline and um 
and go do it. But you get into trouble where you, you come with a lot of things and then you ask people to kind of do this back formation saying, well, here's what it looks like you got. We'll analyze it now and then we'll work back through it and then you'll build the thing that we are saying you've already built. Hmm. Um, I think some people had that, those editorial chops, you know, where they can look dispassionately at something they've done and, and chop it up. But I think that, um, I never really, yeah, I never really get there with my own stuff. Um, yeah. and, um, so I think kept kind of building at Goucher and, and it was a lot of talking through the, the idea about what it's trying to be. I think when I came in, I, I somehow had this, this idea that I could write a book that didn't, didn't purport to be about anything in particular, that it was like, I'm just going to, I'm going to tell you true feelings and true stories and um, and then whatever you get out of it is cool. I won't try and push you in any direction. I won't try and make points. That's bullshit, you know. Like that, you, <laughs> you you're all you're always making points regardless. And I think if you're not you're not aware of that, then most of the time it just means that your readers are you're not you're not you're not giving them enough. You know, it's like it's like. I don't know. I mean, I, I just want to make a ton of metaphors. I don't know what's going to work, but it's like you just start cooking food in like an apartment and you don't tell anybody it's a restaurant. And what do you think is going to happen? Nobody's going to know how to approach you or how to get to the place or how to get. Uh, okay. That wasn't a great metaphor. Uh, but, uh, you know what I mean? Like you need to give people some tools and to be self-aware enough so that you really, you can use all of this evidence that I was trying to put together. You got to you, you, you should want to use that to make points, to make particular points. You just have to decide what it is you're trying to do with them. So I think that at Goucher, you know, at the MFA, that was just, there's a lot of years of, of sitting with the, the grander points of the whole thing, you know, the abstract points and letting those crystallize as much as they could so that, you know, this thing that ended up getting written over, you know, basically something like five or seven years, uh, was actually saying something instead of just throwing a bunch of sentences at people's faces. Mm. And so what was that, that process like for you when you were in that gener generative phase of writing a thousand pages, you know, what was, how are you setting up your days to create that much work that, you know, I'm sure ultimately you knew it was going to have to be pared down by 60 or 70%, but like what was that what was that process like for you as you were really getting into the the thick of things i um i should say i'm i'm really bad at routines mm -hmm. i almost as a matter of of kind of ideological commitment even though i wish i had routines but it's like i i never part, partly i'm not organized and partly i go but i want to be extremely flexible and if you if you set things up always in a particular way then what if would you, then you then do you stop being able to change and evolve and all that kind of thing uh so i i was either kind of on or off you know i would when i came back from abu dhabi i just it, i i basically left having any um any real limits, you know, any, uh, any deadlines or any kind of thresholds. And so I just worked constantly. I mean, I would just like get up and then basically sit in one place until I literally couldn't bear it anymore. And then I would completely stop for the day. I, I couldn't go back and forth. I couldn't really take 
lunch breaks. Like I, I was living with Masha, who's in law school at the time. There were, you know, full days at the time where I didn't eat. And she would go, what is going on? And I would just say, well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't feel, I didn't feel like the feeling just didn't have a place to bubble up with that. I was just in, I was, I was writing. I, uh, I can't write and eat at the same time. So I didn't want to eat. Um, or other times where I went, I can't, I just can't break the, I can't break a train of thought, but that was largely because I was so disorganized that really, unless I was holding the the thought in my head, I was going to lose it. And, you know, I kept that up for, I think I still work in that way to a point. Um, but yeah, I would, I, you know, I kept that up for a year, a year and a half until I went, yeah, this isn't, you know, this isn't working now. I got, now I got a thousand pages and it's just not going to doing what I'm doing is for sure not going in the right direction anymore. Um, what made you want to stick with it? Was it a, a matter of I, I, you? Because if you generate that much work, sometimes you might. There's two ways to think of it. You've put that much work into it, so there's no way you're giving up on it. Or you've put so much work into it, and it's just too big to get your mind around that maybe you just abandon ship and go to something else. No, clearly, you stuck with it. So, what made you want to keep just keep hammering at? at that nail until you got it to the point where you were satisfied with it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, it would be crazy if I said that the kind of making good on work you've already put in wasn't a huge part of it. Um, even when in the first, in the first few months, if I was writing tons of pages per day or whatever, uh, there's this kind of concrete feeling of like, I'm accomplishing something. And then, that starts to that's that that stops being uh like a, a a concrete accomplishment you can point to but you know i mean i think there was there was there's a real feeling that like this kind of story just wasn't out there enough um and i i looked you know i i was i was always happy to find something where i went cool that's doing this Maybe I could just spend my energy trying to promote something else. Like this wasn't I don't I don't think it was fundamentally motivated by going, I wanna stamp my name on a particular idea or whatever. It was like I just it's still that teenage kind of contrarian impulse that are like a lot of people are saying a lot of things that are wrong. I just wanna poke I just wanna poke them. I just wanna poke holes in arguments that are wrong first just because they're wrong and that's enough and also because they had these really detrimental effects and the way that uh people feel and interact with each other and you know make policy for other people's uh sakes i believe i mean i really i really just I, I really believe that i think because every because i i i kept being able to you know talk to friends who were knowledgeable and working in related industries and tell them stories where they were surprised other other people's surprise was a kind of thing that made me feel like hey man there's still you know there's still something here and what would you say with with respect to your your writing and your writing practice um what are some things that you that you struggle with that you have to constantly lean into to to work around or or uh you know what what are some of those struggles that you need to level up to your strengths i definitely have trouble with 
with organization, you know, I, I often feel like you could take apart sentences, you could take apart paragraphs into their, into their component parts or a whole, or a whole page into whatever sentence, and you could rearrange things in whatever order. And it would, and it would just be another version. It would be, it would be fine. It would be another fine version. And I go, how do, how do, how do you decide? You know, I'll write, I'll write in ways that I think have, they just, they just don't follow an order that makes sense. Um, or they do, but I'm, I can't, I can't be sure. I reread it and I go, should this sentence be at first? Should everything be turned inside out? Should, I think in some ways it's because, I don't know. I I believe in soup, you know, like but you stew everything together and then you get real complex flavors and then you get just the truth. You you give somebody a thousand true ideas and you say you connect them however you want. Um you're right. I don't want to force you to connect things in one particular way that's boring. I think it's making the choices about exactly how to arrange things because you know, we're still three-dimensional creatures or whatever you know we still time still goes in one direction and uh you have to make that choice that's that's always been really tough and then and and so i think i end up relying a lot on basically like flow and and the the music of how how things sound in my head or how they sound out loud because that's something that you can't that's something that's something concrete that you can look at and you can say, well, it could be in this order or this order. It could be arranged in this way, but I want things to read in a way. And maybe this just comes from, you know, my dad's musical influence or or just liking music myself that that it really matters kind of how the how the words end up sounding. Um, yeah. And how do you achieve uh, a, a flow state in your work is there a way that you check in with yourself to to get to that point or do you just put your butt in the chair and just hammer until you get to you get to that place where you're limbered up and you just you're able to just rock and roll that's tough for me yeah i think i'm generally driven by by a kind of some sort of emotional connection to what um, I'm doing, but there's, but there's a balance, you know, it's like if you're, if you're mad, if you're really mad and you're trying to write the mad part, the <laughs> sometimes, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing red too much to see the page, you know, and there's, there is a sweet spot somewhere, but yeah, I think it's, I have a feeling that the things that I write, I write quickest are often the best. I don't know. I don't know how many people feel that and that the things that have to be really hammered, you know, not just like polished and tweaked a little bit, but really just forced into being something often come out the way that like a, an omelet you over beat is going to, you know, just, mm. just too tough how to get into that state. Yeah. I think it's, it's a lot of just trying to keep some kind of clear headspace where, where you're you're writing for the reasons you write, you're really writing to get the ideas out, and you're not writing for other purposes. Uh, and that's been tough, you know, with something like, uh, say, writing op eds that are supposed to be in connection to to publicize the book or something, where there is this other incentive that you're thinking about while you're writing the thing that you're writing, and it just keeps poking at you, going, "Hey, well, maybe you want to say this in order to put that that kind of stuff, that kind of." you know, uh, writing for multiple masters. That's, that definitely, uh, that's definitely something I try and keep, 
keep uh, keep at bay. At what point of or what part of the process do you feel most engaged and most alive with or alive in? Other other people reading it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't I don't love spending my days in my own head. You know, I think that there are a lot of there are writers who are who are happy, you know, sitting in a in a in a hut somewhere, you know, in the Hebrides kind of writing when the storm comes in and there's nobody else around. And every once in a while they send a, a letter, you know, strapped to a Pelican's foot to their publisher and they never see other human beings or something like that, you know? And I, I would, I would much rather, I don't know if that's a thing. That seems like that would be a thing. Uh, but I, I would much rather spend time with other people and, uh, there's a certain kind of doubt that never goes away. I think when I'm writing, that's like maybe something resonates. You know, I I I, I, uh, I write something and I go that that flows well and it says exactly what I mean and and I don't think you could take this in any other way or whatever way you take it. I agree with that's great, but there's still some seed of doubt that's like maybe this is nonsense or maybe or maybe you know even worse maybe this is like pretentious trite nonsense. Or maybe this is obvious, you know, and there's something about, honestly, the moment, whatever moment it is where somebody else has gotten involved in the process. That's like, that's how I can stay basically connected to, to what I'm trying to be connected to, you know, hmm. um, that's <laughs> not like not to say that the you know, favorite part about the writing process is when it's over, because I don't think I don't think that is over. I think all the responses come back into the next thing that you do and to, you know, to continuing to work. And what's your criteria for like vetting, vetting out that that feedback that you might get from some chosen readers? Do, do you uh, is there a way that you say, like, oh, this is this is good or and like, no, nah, I'm not going to I'm not going to follow that line of reasoning. But uh, thank you for your input anyway. But uh, how do you choose which ones you want to, you know, put into practice? That's super hard because I, I don't think I've ever fully made a choice about who it is I'm trying to write for. And I and I know that that's such a kind of a basic that's a, a basic instruction, you know, figure out who your audience is and imagine them reading. And I go, well, I'm not trying to rule anybody out, at least not specifically. And so by that token, kind of anybody's opinions are valid in some way. Um, and say somebody reads something and they go, well, this just didn't make sense. Or when I, you're missing this or something like that. And, and maybe it's just because they, didn't read closely enough or because they took something out of context or whatever, but all those ways of reading are, are possible, you know, and, and I kind of want to keep them in mind. It's really hard to, to, to rule out somebody's input. Um, still going back to that same kind of, how can I, how can I incorporate everything and somehow reconcile everything with everything else? And it's, and it's not possible. It's not actually possible. And so in some ways, you know, like I always fail to some degree, but it's kind of like the things that I would rule out are the things that probably jibe the least well with other comments, um, or that maybe come from a perspective that I actually can, can rule out. Like if somebody says, you know, this is say too provocative and it's going to make people think this and this and this, I can sometimes say, 
you know, by, by your reasoning, I'm still okay with it. You know, you, you made this conclusion and I, I, I agree with everything that gets there, but I don't agree with the reaction to that conclusion. And then, and then I can say, you know, I'm confident and, and, uh, I'm confident in poking people or something like that. Mm. And when you were writing the book, um, and even beforehand, like who, who were you reading that you were kind of using as models? Um, or in even a, like a, a spur of that question is like, who are some of those, uh, writers in fiction or nonfiction that really, um, that inspire you to do the kind of work you're doing and, um, you know, people you revisit all the time. You're like, Oh yeah, that's how it's done. Yeah. Um, I think somebody like Pico Iyer who wrote, you know, this kind of very emotionally connected nonfiction travel writing. Um, he, he was definitely a model where I felt like I was both learning about places in a way that, that felt just really, really, really emotionally connected. You know, um, I, I should also say that like I have crazy trouble actually reading and not basically like anything that I connect to. I, I have, you know, a hundred thoughts that pop out of every sentence that I, that I love, you know, hmm. and it makes it, it makes it tough to read whole books so much of the time, you know, because you're going, Oh man, this makes me think of this and this and this. And, uh, then I have to do Then I want to incorporate this idea and this idea and this idea. Uh, but, um, so in that way, you know, it's like almost anything I read, uh, or had read for the past seven years probably has, has some footprint in the book. Um, you know, somebody like Fanon, you know, Franz Fanon's writing about kind of race in Algeria and in France, you know, there were these ideas about how, how you felt when you saw other people looking at you. And that was something that was, that was really key. And then, you know, after I'd kind of written the, the rough manuscript and was editing it, uh, I, a friend gave me, uh, East of Eden, which I'd never read that, you know, I read, I, I, I did, I read all of, uh, you know, and was, was kind of frantically underlining the whole way. And I, I started to see the whole book as kind of an homage, honestly, to, to East of Eden, which is all about choice. It's all about how human beings just need to need to come to terms with the fact that we maybe uniquely get to make choices and we have to do it. And that's what makes us people. And I think that's a lot of what my, that helped me kind of crystallize some of the main, the, the one of the main points of, of my book saying, well, that's, yeah, that's what, I think that's what I'm saying too. Hmm. And are there particular books that you, they, that, uh, in the event that you're able, like, you're, the sentences don't make you like think of a hundred different things that, uh, that you, that you find yourself rereading over and over again. I wish I reread stuff. I, I think I, maybe when I'm, I'm older, I'll be better at that. I think I still have the, maybe it's a young person's addiction to novelty, but where I go, got to get more in. There's so much out there and got to explore more things. And, Mm -hmm. um, pretending that I remember the things that I have read or watched before and, and then just adding new things to the mix. But, uh, yeah, I mean, East of Eden is something I definitely go back to, um, trying to, trying to understand, you know, the, the multiple ways that that can be taken. And 
And Pico Iris stuff, definitely. I mean, I think, yeah, it's nice to have that. But I, I yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a great point. I got to figure that out. I got to, <laughs> I got to figure out how to reread. But maybe I have to figure out how to read properly first. I don't know. <laughs> if if you ever find yourself in uh, creative funk or just you know down in the way that uh, all artists sometimes get down, like what kind of um, how do you pick yourself back up out of that? Maybe what kind of self talk do you use to kind of remind yourself, like um, just to, to to get back up that you have like some some value to give, some value to offer? Because um, I know I know I, it happens frequently. For me, and I know others I've spoken to that uh, they do get down and they have to kind of pick themselves back up somehow. So I was wondering, like, if you experience that, how do you go about getting yourself back up so you can get the work done? That's basically a constant, you know, even at the better moments of writing this book. I don't really think there's ever a day that went by with with kind of full confidence. And, 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 and honestly, like, not really a full moment. I mean, I think we're all of kind of multiple minds at the same time at least some, you know, percentage of my energy was spent telling me like, you're a fucking idiot. Uh, (laughs) And really there's no, there's actually no way around. Like if you, if you're really interested in understanding just what's, what's true, there's no way that you're ever going to prove that wrong. Like to some degree. And I, I think I always knew that I was playing with a kind of danger of writing a first person, you know, nonfiction memoir, I, you know, side note, I'm not sure it should be legal to write a memoir when you're under, I want to say 60. Like it's, <laughs> there's some part of it that's extremely unhealthy. And I, and, you know, even before the, the culture of, you know, uh, Instagram stories and reporting, you know, every second of your life, I still felt like there's something dangerously narcissistic about this and unless i could turn it into something else uh then then it was going to be a huge mistake you know like unless that um that cost became worth something um in a different way so and and, yeah this is a huge huge tangent but that you know so that was there the whole time and uh it, it basically made it so that like i can't couldn't really rely on like abstract conceptual pick-me-ups, you know, to get back on track because I'd had whatever thought and its opposite and already been having the argument with myself about, you know, this is really worth it. It's worthless. It's really worth it. It's worthless. And to take a step back and then consciously say it's worth it, you know, every other conscious part of my head was like, dude, we already heard you. I get it. But this other thing we've already had this talk we've already we've so the things that help i think are just um are way are way more concrete they're like being with other people you know and actually getting out of my head because my my head is where that war is going on and you know in in some cases it's like just being a part of the war you're gonna lose so the way to save that energy is by just getting out of it and trying not to engage on that in that conscious way. Um, and, and trying to just do things and find other places to get, uh, to, to get energy back. Um, and I thought about this a lot. I think at one, at one moment where, uh, 
during during the first round of approaching agents and getting rejected, I wrote this little essay called called Hope on Loan, and it was kind of this, <laughs> this idea that like there were there were hope sharks, you know, and I I would find just like ways of getting hope, you know, like finding change in between the couch cushions, <laughs> just wherever I could get it that I would, because I knew on one level I wanted to keep doing this project, but I also could not afford it, you know, hope wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's like, what can I, what can I pawn for, for hope to, to keep this going? Um, and some of those sources, some of those sources of hope are really good ones. You know, those are the kinds of things that make you go, I got to get outside and see human beings and like be a part of the world in a really good way. And then some of them I think are turn into, um, you know, kind of unhealthy practices or, or trying to convince yourself of things that, that, that don't really hold up. Huh. Is that essay, is that available online somewhere? Um, I don't think, uh, I don't think anyone ever ran it. You know, I'm, okay. I'm using it actually as a as a treatment for like a scripted TV pitch, which I thought, you know, this because wouldn't we all want to see what the world would look like if hope hope was our currency? You know, yeah. um, but, which it's which I think you know it is. I think it sort of actually kind of is in a lot of ways. And what did you what did you learn from this book that? you're hoping to apply to the next one. Maybe it's just that there's a, a certain kind of certainty that just never exists. And maybe in a moment it does, but like the idea that you, you hit on something that is, you know, uh, unable to be critiqued from any angle and does exactly what you want. And, that's not, that's, that's not really the goal, you know? Um, and I think there's a kind of one, one of the ways that I found to avoid choice, you know, to avoid making decisions for forever was to stick to, to, you know, absolutism as a way of, as a way of, uh, as a way of making choices, you know, just stick to some sort of absolute. Um, that's where things are clearer. It's like, yeah, but none of the actual world is there. Uh, you know, there's nothing that I'm ever going to write where, you know, I think everybody's, everybody's reaction to it will be in the family of things that I find okay and all the, you know, um, or even something that I read back to myself and go, this says everything I need it to. Um, <laughs> because, uh, you know, every sentence is a part of a paragraph and every paragraph is part of a page and every page is a part of a, the whole book or something and you can connect those in every possible way and interactions are great. And you just, you, at a certain point you stop, you know, at a certain point you got to trust your gut. So I think that's, that's probably the hardest. That's really the hardest thing. I think especially, you know, in that transition from having written zero books to having written one and then from one to any more than that, where you go, Oh, my, my, gut is actually good enough at least for starters it's not going to be perfect and and people are going to people are going to respond by saying yo your gut instincts are bullshit <laughs> some of them are you know nowadays people will say your gut instincts some of them are racist some of them make you an atrocious human being some of them mean you're an impulsive animal 
and then you get to you get to respond to yourself or however saying I don't care or great or oh that's cool I get to change now. I think the hardest thing is just like engaging with the conversation for starters, you know, and that's probably what we don't have enough of nowadays is like actual back and forth conversations based in in real stuff. But yeah. but what I would take from the book is yeah for a next for next book I I get to tell myself look you know this is just the, it's just the start of a, it's just the start of a thing. And whoever engages, you get to engage back with them. It's not, it's not supposed to be, uh, the beginning and the end of something. And where is your, your gut and your taste taking you for your next project? So I, uh, I'm definitely, I'm definitely working on some things in, in TV, um, which are driven by a lot of the same impulses, uh, basically about exploring kind of off limits places in a really, really human, human way, you know, and on the, and on the writing side, um, some of that turns into, you know, writing, uh, scripted projects that also have, have the same, it's like, what do we do to keep reinforcing the idea of, of common humanity? I think that's, that's, I know, I know how extremely, trite so much of this can be you know like just arguing for argue, just arguing for humanity i mean that's a ridiculous concept um <laughs> but but what we're seeing happen now is you know in the you know i had european friends call this the culture wars in america i think americans do too that we're 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 picking ourselves apart in a way that uh, is not helpful. That actually makes it so that that argument for common humanity is not the universal is not a universal thing. Like my, I think high school English teacher said, you know, if you're writing an essay and nobody can disagree with it, it's a bullshit essay. But people actually do disagree with this now. You know, partly the rise of tech is also eroding certain things that used to be uh, the domain of of humans and human choice. And so I found myself, I think, more comfortable writing about and working on projects where this thing that I used to, I used to kind of shit on myself as like a, a Pollyanna kind of perspective as being like actually worth fighting for. And uh, it's, it's tough because nobody, nobody wants, nobody wants to be, nobody wants to be Pollyanna. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I knew from, uh, you know, from the opening sentences uh, of the book, I knew it was going to be a, a fun ride. You, say you had, a, you know, a real fluid way and inviting way and a great tonality to, to the voice on the page that was just fun to be with for the 335 pages it was. So I just want to, like, thank you for the book and um, and for the work. And, and uh, uh, where can people find you online, Adam? Thank you so much, man. Uh, I am, uh, I'm on, I'm on, uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, uh, should be findable. My, uh, my name is sometimes spelled wrong on those things as a, as a joke. Uh, but, uh, but if you, if you search for me, you'll, you'll find me. And, um, yeah, the book, the book's hopefully everywhere. I've been, uh, every time I pass through a Barnes and Noble, I grab and I move it to the front, which I think, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I uh, wait, shouldn't have admitted that on the podcast, but uh, that's all right. We all do it. <laughs> don't we all, you know, I heard from somebody who was like, I got caught doing this 
And uh, perhaps the most embarrassing thing, because they check, you know, the jacket. They're like, this is this is you. You're uh, but uh, important rite of passage. maybe. Yes, of course. Well, Adam, uh, thanks so much for the time and and for the book. And uh, and um, yeah, we'll have to do this again when uh, when when you've got some other workout. We'll have you back on for a round two and uh, dig into more of what it means to write true stories. So thanks again, man. Absolutely. Can't wait. All right. Take care, man. You got it. All right. That's another episode in the books, as they say. I think that's what they say. Thank you to Adam, and thank you for listening. Still jonesing for some nonfiction material? Sign up for my monthly newsletter, where I send out my monthly book recommendations, as well as what you might have missed from the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. I'm thinking of adding some radio and or podcasts and some documentary film recommendations to the newsletter too, so it'll be this nice nonfiction hub for you to digest over the ensuing month. Still once a month, no spam, can't beat it. And where do you sign up for this? You go to brendanomera.com. There's a smart bar at the top of the website, and there might even be a pop-up that comes up in the middle and says, hey, sign up. Do it. It's a growing list. It's fun. It's once a month. Say hi on Twitter. I'm at Brendan O'Mara or at CNFPod. CNFPod has one follower right now. I'll give you one guess who follows it, and it's not my mom. I've got some ringers in the queue, and 2018 has barely started. I hope you stick around, because you're in for a CNF and great year, friends. See you right here next week for another episode of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. Thank you.